Greetings to all of you. My name is Michael Lerner. I'll be introducing Terry Tempest Williams. Before I get to that, a few announcements. I want to say how overjoyed I am that this is the 10th anniversary of our partners, Steve Costa and Kate Levinson at Point Reyes Bookstore. Are Steve and Kate here? Would you all... There's Steve, great. Is Kate here? Great. So, you know, you all know this if you're from West Marin, but Steve and Kate took what was already a wonderful bookstore and transformed it into a center for culture, for consciousness, for engaged service to the community that is really unlike anything that West Marin has ever had before. So we owe you just a tremendous debt for this decade and our gratitude for the partnership with Commonwealth. Uh, Uh, how many of you have never been to Commonweal before, just out of curiosity? Wow. So I should say a few words about where you are. Um, Commonweal is a nonprofit center that Burr Hanneman and I, where's Burr? Here he is, Burr and I started in 1976 with Carolyn Brown, uh, who since passed on. Uh, so, created by three Bolinas residents with a vision of it being a center where we would work on healing ourselves and healing the earth. And that's what it's been for the last 36 years. Um, it has about a, a 12 different programs. Um, one of them is the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. Uh, Brooks' brother Steve came on the Cancer Help Program and it was important in his life. Um, and we have many Cancer Help Program alumni with us today, um, and they are a beloved and central part of our community. Uh, another program some of you know about is Rachel Naomi Remen's program, the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness. Rachel, where are you? Uh, here's Rachel. Rachel, many of you know Rachel's work. <laughs> Her, uh, her, her course, The Healer's Art, is in 70 medical schools around the world. And uh, she is the author of uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, and is a genius at, um, at what she does. Um, and uh, a third I'll mention is the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. Elise Miller is the director. Elise, where are you? Elise uh, directs... Uh, the Collaborative on Health and the Environment from Whidbey Island off the coast of uh, Seattle, and uh, that has 4,000 partners around the world debating the science on what toxic chemicals and other environmental factors do to our bodies and to all of life. And um, so um, I could go on uh, with a long list. Uh, Kira Epstein is here, the coordinator of the new school. Kira, would you raise your hand? <laughs> Um, and I, I know that I could go on uh, and probably should, but I'll stop there in terms of... Oh, is Joan Evans here? Yes, Joan, the director of the Institute for Art and Healing at Commonwealth, uh, one of our newest programs. So anyway, you get the idea. A dozen programs, kind of a think-and-do tank for social entrepreneurs, 
is one way of thinking about it, but it's a place, very flat place, where a dozen very gifted people and their equally gifted support staffs uh, do work that is in service to life. I also want to uh, introduce our extraordinary executive director, Susan Braun. Susan, would you just stand for a moment? <clears throat> so, yeah. So that just gives you a sense of, uh, of a community of service to life in health, environment, education, and justice. Um, um, so part of what we do, uh, the new school, is this series of conversations. Uh, uh, and uh, Terry uh, uh, is with us today. Um, and Terry has been a, a friend of Commonweal for a long time. Uh, she's a close friend of Jennifer Stoll, who directs the retreat center here. Um, and um, we have been hanging out together for many years. Um, I was rereading When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice, uh, Terry's new book. And most of you know that Terry is really, um, she's one of the great writers of our time. Um, she's written 14 books, including Refuge, Leap, The Open Space of Democracy, and Finding Beauty in a Broken World. And she came out to the new school to talk about Finding Beauty in a Broken World several years ago. Um, she's received many fellowships, uh, John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship, uh, Lannan Literary Fellowship. She's teaching at Dartmouth now. She divides her time between Castle Valley, Utah, and Moose, Wyoming. Um, and what I'd, what I'd like to say about Terry is that um, she writes about uh, being a woman. She writes about her relationships with her family, particularly her mother and grandmother. Um, she writes about nature as her religion. She has a way of feeling her way along the edges of words until she comes to their root. And she is able to speak and write truth in a way that escapes most of us. Um, if you don't know her work, you have a, a wonderful experience ahead of you. Uh, if you do know her work, I encourage you to find your way further into it, because it is an inexhaustible source of light and joy. So please join me in welcoming Terry Tempest Williams. Good afternoon. Thank you, Michael. My heart is quivering. I trust it will calm, and I ask you to hold this space with me. Each time I come to Commonweal, I am reminded of the healing grace that occurs here, personally, collectively through the arts, through the humanities, through science, and through the body. 
and it is always sheer poetry to be here. The last time I was here was when our beloved friend and poet W.S. Merwin was here in conversation with Eric, and I just, I'm so mindful of the people who inhabit this space. When I look at you, all I feel is gratitudes. Michael, thank you for the conversation that we've never stopped having, that is ongoing. And thank you for your leadership, not only of the heart, but of the mind. Thank you for what you gave my brother as he was dying, which was his sovereignty of soul. It was here that I think Steve found both his authentic voice and his authority beyond God. And Jennifer, thank you for holding all of us in our times of transition. Your love of red. Where else can you go into a car and see a beautiful manzanita that has been transformed into coral? So, thank you. And Rachel, thank you so much for the presence and mind that showed my brother Steve not only what was possible but necessary. Susan, Kira, thank you for all the preparations and, again, your leadership here. It's so thrilling to be able to honor you, Steve, and Kate as a writer, as a community. I would not have a voice were it not for you. Um, independent bookstores create independent bookstores, and we cannot thank you enough. And this is what community looks like. I'm just going to thank a few people because to me this is, this is really why we gather. Marty Krasny, you teach me about what compassionate intelligence is in the world. And it's such a privilege to serve with you on the Compton board. Burr Henneman. It was in 2010 that Jennifer introduced us. Brooke and I went over to Burr and Janet's home. It was in the middle of the BP oil spill. And Burr, you asked me to take what frame we were being given and look off frame. And that made all the difference. You asked me to look beyond our own national borders and realize every day around the world there are these oil spills. And because of you, I had to go myself and bear witness Thank you for teaching me how to see more deeply. Vijaya and Lee and your beautiful daughters, a lifelong friendship. Eric and Mike, a new friendship expanding. Moonlight on water. This morning as I was sitting in Sally Robertson's garden, I just thought, how could I forget that there's this much foliage in the world. You know, living in the desert, um, we forget. So with moonlight on the water, with the moon of last night, with California poppies and, and this extraordinary array, um, knowing that, Jean, you are here now, it's just such a celebration. Um, so many friends, too many to name. Please just know of my gratitudes. For the next 30 minutes, I want to share with you where I have been really in the last 25 years. And so this emergence of when women were birds 
rises as a secret, my mother's secret and my own. What if there were a hidden pleasure in calling one thing by another's name? Ray Armentrout. I am 54 years old, the age my mother was when she died. This is what I remember. We were lying on her bed with a mohair blanket covering us. I was rubbing her back, feeling each vertebra with my fingers as a rung on a ladder. It was January, and the ruthless clamp of cold bore down on us outside. Yet inside, mother's tenderness and clarity of mind carried its own warmth. She was dying in the same way she was living, consciously. I am leaving you all my journals, she said, facing the shuttered window as I continued rubbing her back. But you must promise me that you will not look at them until after I am gone. I gave her my word, and then she told me where they were. I didn't know my mother kept journals. A week later, she died. That night, there was a full moon encircled by ice crystals. On the next full moon, I found myself alone in the family home. I kept expecting Mother to appear. Her absence became her presence. It was the right time to read her journals. They were exactly where she said they would be, three shelves of beautiful cloth-bound books. Some floral, some paisley, others in solid colors. The spines of each were perfectly aligned against the lip of the shelves. I opened the first journal. It was empty. I opened the second journal. It was empty. I opened the third. It, too, was empty. I opened the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. All of my mother's journals were blank. I do not know why my mother bought journal after journal, year after year, and never wrote in one of them and passed them on to me. I will never know. The blow of her blank journals became a second death. My mother's journals are paper tombstones. I am 54 years old, the age my mother was when she died. The questions I hold now could not have been comprehended when I was a woman in my 20s. I didn't realize how young she was. But isn't that the conceit of mothers, that we conceal our youth and exist only for our children? It is the province of mothers to preserve the myth that we are unburdened with our own problems. Placed in a circle of immunity, we carry only the crises of those we love. We mask our needs as the needs of others. If ever there was a story without a shadow, it would be this that we as women exist in direct sunlight only. When women were birds, we knew otherwise. We knew our greatest freedom was in taking flight at night when we could steal the heavenly darkness for ourselves, navigating through the intelligence of stars and the constellations of our own making in the delight and terror of our uncertainty. What my mother wanted to do and what she was able to do remains her secret. We all have our secrets. I hold mine. To withhold words is power. But to share our words with others openly and honestly is also power. What is voice? When I opened my mother's journals and read emptiness, it translated to longing. 
that same hunger and thirst Mother translated to me. I will rewrite this story, create my own story, on the pages of my mother's journals. I am writing on the blank page of my mother's journal, not with a pen, but with a pencil. I like the idea of erasure. The permanence of ink is an illusion. Ink fades and is absorbed into the paper. Water can smear it. Ink runs out. A pencil can be sharpened repeatedly and then disappear in the process, like me. In the past, my words have been born out of flames. Today, my words emerge from water. A woman's water breaks and she goes into labor. Birth is imminent. A writer's imagination breaks loose and she too goes into labor. Everything feels new. A new year, a new decade, a new blank page. I am writing on the blank page of my mother's journals, not with a pen, but with a pencil. I like the idea of erasure. One, to rub or scrape out. Two, to eliminate completely. Three, to obliterate. Four, slang to murder. Five, to give way to effacement. Six, to remove, rub out. Verb, synonyms. Abolish, annul, black out, blank, blot, blue pencil, cross out, cut, cut out, delete, disannul, dispatch, efface, eliminate, excise, expunge, extirpate, gut, kill, launder, negate, nullify, obliterate, scratch out, stamp out, strike, strike out, take out, trim, wipe out, withdraw, X. Erasure. What every woman knows but rarely discusses. I don't mind erasure if it is done with my own hand. My choice. Write a word, not the right word. Turn the pencil upside down, erase back and forth on the page. Pencil upright, begin again. Point on the page, pause, find the right word. Write the white word. Word by word, the language of women so often begins with a whisper. I am leaving you all my journals. When silence is a choice, it is an unnerving presence. When silence is imposed, it is censorship. My mother's journals are an obsession. My mother's journals are an obsession shared. My mother's journals are a possession. My mother's journals now possess me. My mother's journals are desire. My mother's journals are my desire to know. My mother's journals are evidence. My mother's journals are evidence she knew me. My mother's journals are the power of absence. My mother's journals are the power of presence. Matilda Thomas was born one year ago on New Year's Day. Her father is my nephew, Nate. Her mother's name is Gina and is a first-generation Korean-American. In Korean tradition, on a child's first birthday, she is presented with vocational objects placed on a table representing the work of the parents, aunts, and uncles, and guests. A dollar bill for wealth is included alongside a bullet or a replica of a gun to represent military service. The child stands before the objects and is invited to pick what delights her. Whatever the child chooses, tradition says this is what she will become.
picked two more, and they portend the accompanying passions. Matilda picked a cook's large spoon, a chef. She picked her father's blackberry, a lawyer, and her auntie's pencil, a writer. I whispered in Matilda's ear when no one was looking, a pencil is a wand and a weapon. Be careful. Protect yourself. It can be glorious. My mother left me her journals, and all her journals were blank. Emily Dickinson wrote poems in her bedroom and kept them largely secret. The poet Susan Howe writes, quote, she may have chosen to enter the space of silence, a space where power is no longer an issue, gender is no longer an issue, voice is no longer an issue, where the idea of a printed book appears as a trap. I wonder if I should have given Matilda a blank piece of paper instead. My dear Matilda, I write you this letter with the tip of a feather dipped in blood. No, that's not right. My dear Matilda, I write you this letter with the tip of a feather dipped in invisible ink. It was mother who showed us how to write secret messages with lemon juice. She would pick a lemon, roll it on the counter with her hands, then slice it in half and squeeze the juice into a bowl. With paintbrushes in hand, we would write our words on parchment paper. A match was lit, the flame burned beneath the paper. What was hidden magically appeared. My mother's journals are written with invisible ink. What needs to be counted on to have a voice? Courage, anger, love, something to say, someone to speak to, someone to listen. I have talked to myself for years in the privacy of my journals. The only things I've done religiously are keep a journal and use birth control. My first journal had a lock and key. It was a diary made of light blue leather embossed with a gold border. My thoughts and secrets were safe from my brothers. It was a gift from my great-grandfather, Lawrence Blackett, Mimi's father, to commemorate my eighth birthday and baptism into the Mormon church. Mormon women write. That's what we do. We write for posterity, noting the daily happenings of our lives. Keeping a journal is keeping a record and I have hundreds of them. Hundreds of journals filled with feathers, flowers, photographs, and words, without locks open on my shelves. I have more journals still with field notes from the Arctic to Africa, to days spent at the Prado, to time shared among prairie dogs. Day books with calendars, shopping lists, and accounting figures are strewn across our home. I cannot think without a pen in hand. If I don't write it down, it doesn't exist. Mother knew this about me. She also knew and more than understood the Mormon promptings to become a scribe. In our possession, passed down from mother to daughter, we have many, many journals written in the most elegant script by our forebears, especially women who practice polygamy. I take personal pride in a journal entry made by my great-great-grandmother, Romney who chastises her husband for taking a third wife who, quote, was a pretty but sickly little thing, unfit to lift a hoe in the fields or bring in a bushel of sugar beets, adding to my burden of household chores. One can only speculate why she was brought home in the first place. <laughs> Unquote. Mother was a private woman, not a silent one. She would often say, 
I don't like people knowing my personal thoughts. She was a coyote, a trickster, a woman deflecting an interest in her to an interest in others. In my mother's presence, you were heard. And she always left knowing a lot more about you than you knew about her. She preferred it that way. She was warm and gracious in public, but she was a master at maintaining her privacy. Intimacy was on her terms. When Mother did share, and she shared deeply with those closest to her, her eyes were penetrating. What do you think, she would ask. It makes sense that what she bequeathed to me was a mystery. My mother's journals are an act of defiance. My mother's journals are an act of aggression. My mother's journals are an act of modesty. <coughs> to be read, to be heard, to be seen. I want to be read. I want to be heard. I don't need to be seen. But to write requires an ego, a belief that what you say matters. Writing also requires an aching curiosity, leaving leading you to discover, uncover, what is gnawing in your bones. Words have a weight to them. How you choose to present them and to whom is a matter of style and choice. Yet the emptiness of my mother's journals carries the weight of a question. Many questions. My mother's journals are an interrogation. It is winter. Ravens are standing on a pile of bones, black typeface on white paper, picking an idea clean. It's what I do each time I sit down to write. What else are we to do with our obsessions? Do they feed us, or are we simply scavenging our memories for one gleaming image to tell the truth of what is hunting us? To write, Margaret Dura remarked, is also not to speak. It is to keep silent. It is to howl noiselessly. Today there is a fresh field of snow, no visitations by ravens, just a pristine landscape wiped clean by a blizzard. What I wouldn't give to follow my mother's tracks before she covered them up with her silence. My mother was a great reader. She left me her journals, and all her journals were blank. I believe she wanted them read. How do I read them now? I am afraid of silence. Silence creates a pathway to peace through pain, the pain of a distracted and frantic mind before it becomes still. I fear silence because it leads me to myself, a self I may not wish to confront. It asks that I listen, and in listening, I am taken to an unknown place. It is not necessarily a place of comfort. My body is a compass, and it does not lie. As women, we are quiet about our personal lives, especially when it comes to sex. We are quiet because there is a history of abuse and harm committed toward those who tell the truth. Marriages are shattered, families are broken, judgments are rendered, the woman stands alone. Our stories live underground. Muriel Reichheiser asks the great question, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. The world is splitting open. On October 16, 1916, Margaret Sanger opened the first family planning and birth control center on 46 Amboy Street in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. 
Nine days later, it was raided by police. Margaret Sanger, the leader of the modern-day birth control movement, spent 30 days in prison. She would be arrested seven more times in her 87 years of living for speaking out on behalf of a woman's right to birth control and the privacy of her own body. H.G. Wales stated at a 1931 dinner speech in Margaret Sanger's honor, quote, the movement she started will grow to be, a hundred years from now, the most influential of all time in controlling man's destiny on earth, unquote. I wonder what they would think about the discourse we are having now. <laughs> when we were children, we visited mother in the hospital. We were told that she was having corrective surgery. Later, I learned she made the decision to have her tubes tied, not a common practice among her Mormon peers. Freedom, she would tell me. Birth control gave me my voice. It is perhaps the only thing in my life about which I have been utterly responsible. I have never had an abortion, but I was grateful to have had that choice before me. I was a senior at Highland High School in 1973 when the landmark case Roe versus Wade was decided in the Supreme Court. We debated that issue. It was a decision that gave us confidence as young women entering sexual maturity that we did have control over our own bodies. No woman terminates a pregnancy easily. No one who has ever felt life inside her can negate that power. It is never a decision made lightly, without love or pain or a prayer toward forgiveness. Because what every woman knows each month when she bleeds is, I am not pregnant. Because what every woman understands each time she makes love is life could be in the making now, which is why when a woman allows a man to enter her, it is not just a physical act, but an act of surrendering to the possibility that her life may no longer be hers alone. Because until she bleeds, she will check her womb every day for the stirrings of life. Because until she bleeds, she wonders if her life will be one or two or three, because until she bleeds, she imagines every possibility, from pleasure to pain to birth to death, and how she will do what she needs to do. And until she bleeds, she will worry endlessly, until she bleeds. If a man knew what a woman never forgets, he would love her differently. No. I have never had an abortion, but I know the tenderness of many women who have. It is much more common than we choose to admit. We have gone underground. This is the conversation we are not having. The abortions we have experienced are an intrinsic part of who we are and what we have become. And it is deeply private. Just recently, I learned that three of my closest friends have had abortions. It's not something we ever discussed. I thought I knew everything. One involved a genetic disease, another was a situation that would have imperiled her marriage, and another was a pregnancy in college that would have changed the course of her life. We make a choice. This is our spiritual and legal right in the United States of America. We deserve to make this choice without the judgments of others. There is nothing abstract about giving birth. There is nothing more sobering than for a woman to place her hands on her belly and wonder what is the right thing to do. It is always about love. It is never done lightly. 
And there is nothing more demeaning to women than to have a man, especially a man we don't know, define the laws that will govern our milk and blood. Milk and blood. Why these two words? Because milk, as in cow, as in breast, as in semen, as in any substance that nurtures and nourishes at once, is at the heart of pleasure. Because we drink deeply, because we drink deeply out of need and desire. Because blood, as in flow, as in menses, as in moon, as in cycle, means I am not pregnant. Because what every woman understands each time she makes love is life could be in the making now. Which is why when a woman allows a man to enter her, it is not just a physical act, but a spiritual one. Milk and blood. Because milk is what we desired first, because blood is what flows through our working heart. Milk and blood, men and women, pleasure and pain. Love is to life what life is to death. And so we risk everything, trying to touch the ineffable, touching each other. Over and over, again and again, with little control, we lose our minds as we lose ourselves in fire. If a man knew what a woman never forgets, he would love her differently. In August, cottonwood trees create a blizzard of seeds that blanket the ground. One morning, I looked out the window and saw a ground squirrel draped in a coat of cotton. She was picking off the cotton seeds from her arm and eating them. Suddenly, a weasel emerged and began wildly chasing the ground squirrel around the yard. Just as the weasel was about to grab the ground squirrel's neck, ensuring a quick death, the squirrel made an abrupt turn, faced the weasel, and screamed. <laughs> the startled weasel jumped in the air, fell onto its back, as the ground squirrel ran away. <laughs> what are the consequences when we go against our instincts? What are the consequences of not speaking out? What are the consequences of guilt, shame, and doubt? For far too long, we have been seduced into walking a path that did not lead us to ourselves. For far too long, we have said yes when we wanted to say no. And for far too long, we have said no when we desperately wanted to say yes. When we don't listen to our intuition, we abandon our souls. And we abandon our souls because we are afraid if we don't, others will abandon us. We've been raised to question what we know, to discount and discredit the authority of our gut. I want to know why. I regret whenever I abandon myself, but harboring regrets is making love to the past, and there is no movement here. It's not the lips of a prince that will save us, but our own lips speaking. I am growing beyond my own conditioning, breaking set, with what was breaking me. In a voiced community, everyone flourishes. Thirteen ways of looking at a blackbird. I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections 
or the beauty of innuendos, the blackbird whistling or just after, my mother's journals or just after. When I want to see furthest into my soul, I write a sentence by hand and then write another sentence over it, followed by another. An entire paragraph will live in one line and no one else can read it. That's the point. On occasions in a cafe, I can fill an entire paper placemat on both sides. On a plane, the paper bag for air sickness is my canvas. Anything will do, the backs of business cards, receipts, napkins, any scrap of paper. A friend of mine calls it my disease. I call it my confessional. My name for this kind of writing is Repetitions. I'm not alone. Robert Walser, the German modernist, from the beginning of the 20th century wrote in microscripts. They were almost impossible to decipher. He wrote in a tiny pencil script described as between one to two millimeters in height. One block of Walser's text that was two inches tall and almost three inches wide held 113 words. Through the minuscule movements of his pencil, he was liberated from the elegance and eloquence of his former pen. My own hand, with pencil in place, bushwhacks through my psyche, cutting back through the dense understory of random thoughts. As my pencil circles back on itself, destroying as it creates, hiding what has just been written, as another sentence walks across the newly exposed words, I am freed. My reputations tell me the truth the moment they are drawn. And then in the process of layered language, a path is cleared. I see where I need to go. These ephemeral paragraphs, which even I cannot decode once they have been tracked, turn into reimagined glyphs. Their meaning resides in the process of obfuscation. There is an art to writing, and it is not always disclosure. I often tear my repetitions into shreds, creating paper shards to scatter in the garden. If only my mother had known I was her sister instead of her daughter. How is your shadow, your honorable shadow? This was a customary greeting between friends in Japan, a recognition that what we reject is as important as what we embrace. I walk with my shadow behind me, sometimes ahead, often to the side. It is my capricious companion, visible, then hidden, amorphous. A shadow is never created in darkness. It is born of light. We can be blind to it, and blinded by it. Our shadow asks us to look at what we don't want to see. If we refuse to face our shadow, it will project itself on someone else, so we have no choice but to engage. My mother's journals are a projection screen. My mother's journals are a blinding light. My mother's journals are a glaring truth. My mother's journals are bleached. My mother's journals are sanitized. My mother's journals are clean. My mother's journals are clean sheets. My mother's journals are white flags of surrender. My mother's journals see ghosts. My mother's journals hear voices. My mother's journals smell desire. My mother's journals touch eternity. My mother's journals are a charity. My mother's journals are a cruelty. My mother's journals are a paper cut. My mother's journals are salt. My mother's journals are made of gauze to wrap a wound. My mother's journals are a scrim. My mother's journals are a stage. 
My mother's journals are scenes painted white. My mother's journals are programs never printed. My mother's journals are reviews never written. My mother's journals are a writer's block. My mother's journals are a writer's conceit. My mother's journals are her vanities revealed. My mother's journals are her colored hair left white. My mother's journals are the swirls of cold cream she rubbed on her cheeks. My mother's journals are her teeth called veneers. My mother's journals are her sun-blocked protection. My mother's journals are the scent of gardenias. My mother's journals are words wafting above the page. My mother's journals are clouds. My mother's journals are bones. My mother's journals have been stolen. My mother's journals are the Lycian marbles. My mother's journals are Michelangelo's David. My mother's journals are Gertrude Stein's Rose. My mother's journals are the tennis matches she won. My mother's journals are the cue ball in a game of pool. My mother's journals are a white tablecloth not yet set. My mother's journals are a white blouse not yet worn. My mother's journals are diapers washed and folded. My mother's journals are t-shirts washed and pressed. My mother's journals are the letters never writ written. My mother's journals are her treasures of truth. My mother's journals are her scrapbooks of tears. My mother's journals are ice. My mother's journals are a hoax. My mother's journals are a tease. My mother's journals are a puzzle. My mother's journals tell me nothing. My mother's journals tell me everything. Thank you. Thank you all. Terry has agreed to answer some questions. If we can keep the questions relatively brief, we'll have time for more. Who has a question? Yes. Did you did you check the journals for invisible ink? I did not. Other questions? Yes. Will you please record the there's actually, um, we did this, and it was definitely a collaboration with Mickey Houlihan, who's one of the great sound people on the planet. And um, it was a privilege to be able to read to him, to read together. And there was a moment there was um, where we were so intense, we did this in um, Tsuki, just outside Santa Fe, and Brooke and Judy, we were all there together over Christmas, and Mickey and I were just so intense. This is a man, you have to know, that spent years asking his women friends if he could record their children's first moment of breath. Um, he never did get it. <laughs> He's also the person that when he came to visit Brooke and me, our windows were open in the desert, and he said, huh, the crickets here, are are an octave lower than in Colorado. So he's so sensitive, he really is an alchemist. And at one point, um, that piece that I read shared about the raven, 
right when we finished that, we were just overcome by this um, winged constituency of ravens. <laughs> so it was a pleasure. Thank you. Steve says that they have copies downstairs. Some copies downstairs, wonderful, of the recorded version. Yes. Uh, what's next? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I thought I was writing a book about voice, a book that I didn't even know was in me. All I knew is that when my mother left me her journals, and all her journals were blank, um, I was so stunned and so saddened. Um, it felt like a betrayal. It felt, I, I didn't even, I couldn't afford to think about it because it, the grief was so fierce that I just gathered up those journals and took them home and wrote in them unceremoniously. And it really wasn't until 25 years later where I was the age my mother was when she died that I went back into them. I tell you that because I thought that this was a book about voice. What I am discovering is that this is a book about silence. And that's what I feel is next for me. Other questions? Yes. Hi, thank you. I share with you some, some parts of my life. I'm a writer, I am a downwinder. Um, I was left with silence in my family about a lot of things. And I find myself making art now about birds. So when I saw your title today and know some of your story, I'm very interested to hear more about um, birds, the connection to silence that you may be thinking about now, some of the interweavings of those, what birds are, what flight is, what the complications of birds are, the interesting things about birds and how that relates to these other topics that you're grappling with. Thank you. Birds. There was a great blue heron in Michael and Charles' front yard. And I have been away from the West for so long that I thought it was an incredible sculpture. <laughs> I mean, that is just horrifying. I'm, I mean, true story, right? It, this has undone me. I just have to tell you, that's where I am right now. That's what I'm thinking about. I've been teaching at Dartmouth, and I've been on the East Coast way too long. You know? <laughs> Eight weeks. And I saw a great blue heron, and I thought it was a piece of sculpture. I mean, this is, you know, either that or I'm so immersed in art. Um, I will blame it on Mike Sell's beautiful exhibit on stones. Uh, Birds are my teachers, mediators between heaven and earth. And this title came to me in a dream, and I had no idea what it meant. I simply followed. And the irony of the title is that in the natural world, the naturalist in me understands that it's the male bird that largely sings. But I just want to go put feathers in my hair. You know, that's what it feels like to me. Would you tell the story, speaking of birds, would you tell the story from the book about how you and Brooke met? How Brooke and I met? Yeah. I worked at a bookstore, Sam Weller's bookstore, and I was a stock girl, 
I would put, you know, books in order. It was my greatest education, alphabetically by subject. I particularly, as a young Mormon girl, loved the occult section. Anyway, um, they were shorthanded. I was behind the counter. Uh, wild man, kind of disheveled hair, very tanned, uh, walked in with a dear friend of mine who was a beautiful young woman artist, Norv Lambert, and we said hello, and they went off into the bookshelves, and this man came back with all my favorite books. You know, Ed Abbey, um, Desert Solitaire, uh, Blackout Speaks, Curtis's Portfolio, um, I think there was even a Carl Jung book in there, you know, not common in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he, I was trying, I was just listening, and he was saying to Norv, one day, I have, he said, I have a dream. One day, I hope to own all the Peterson field guides. <laughs> and she said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I said, I already have them. <laughs> I was 19, we were married six months later. Other questions? Yes, Jean, Jean Evans. I've been touched by your story of you as a mother at a particular time in your life. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your son and about how Moonbrook met him and how he's doing? Jean asked about our son, Louis Gakumba, and this is a subject out of respect for him, where I am my mother's sister, not her daughter. And because of Louis's privacy, Jean, um, I'm going to be discreet for him. And you will see in the book that after I discover my mother's journals, there's 12 pages that are empty because I wanted the reader to experience on a visceral level what that felt like. This book is in many ways an autobiography of how I found my voice, how I lost my voice, retrieved it, have tried to take care of it, and abandoned it, and retrieved it again. When I came to Louis, who was my translator in Rwanda, who has become part of our family, even through formal adoption, I realized, I thought about Roland Barthes, that which cannot be named is a disturbance. And it's followed by two blank pages. That's Louis's favorite part of the book. <laughs> he is in Washington, D.C. right now, working for the Rwandan embassy. Um, he has been home for the last eight months and came back under some pretty harrowing circumstances. It has brought me to my knees. I think it's brought both Brooke and I um, our greatest joy, and I am grateful. One last question, yes, right here. The entire time that you were reading, I was seeing white. Mm -hmm. I uh, thought of the paintings of Robert Ryman, Agnes Martin, mm -hmm. 
just the beauty of the emptiness of your words. And it's such a paradox to have both a sense of total emptiness and fullness. So I thank you very much. Ah, beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I think that's the gift of my mother's journals. And I would love to close with just the last two pages. And I think about Robert Rauschenberg's white paintings and John Cage. Uh, yes, I, I'm aware of that as well. But in my own mind, I was thinking of Rauschenberg and, and also John Cage with his 4 minutes 33 seconds. My colleague Scott is here, and we've, we've talked about emptiness in museums, what that looks like, the fullness even of bones. My voice rises again and again in beauty within the wonder and awe of the spectacle, an exaltation of larks, the murmuration of starlings, a murder of crows, a parliament of owls, and then in the privacy of truth there is still the repeating courage of one hermit thrush hidden in the woods, singing between intervals of thunder. It is not in sorrow that I am moved to speak or act, but in the beauty of what remains. An albatross on Midway Atoll, dead and decomposing, is now a nest of feathers harboring plastic from the Pacific gyre of garbage swirling in the sea. We can kneel in horror and beg forgiveness, or we can turn away, but the albatross crying overhead, buoyed up by the breeze, is suspended in air by her vast bridge of wings. She is the one who beckons us to respond. How shall I live? I want to feel both the beauty and the pain of the age we are living in. I want to survive my life without becoming numb. I want to speak and comprehend words of wounding without having these words become the landscape where I dwell. I want to possess a light touch that can elevate darkness to the realm of stars. What is time, sacred time, but the acceleration of consciousness? There are so many ways to change the sentences we have been given. We cannot do it alone. We do it alone. How shall we live? Once upon a time, when women were birds, there was the simple understanding that to sing at dawn and to sing at dusk was to heal the world through joy. The birds still remember what we have forgotten, that the world is meant to be celebrated. My mother's journals are to be celebrated. Thank you so much.